Hello and welcome to the American Cinema Foundation Movie Podcast. I am your host, Titus, and today in our postmodern conservative series, I am joined again by my friend Ben Sixsmith. This is not a pleasing time and we are angry. We are angry about the miserable situation we see, especially in Britain, with statues being toppled, threatened, or demands made that history and the nation, in a certain symbolic way, be damned, forgotten, destroyed, and humiliated first. Rioting is trashing Churchill and people are ashamed apparently of Gladstone now and all sorts of other figures, lesser but certainly important to national history, are being humiliated with absolutely no response from the people who are supposedly for conservatism, the Tories, the conservatives, who are also in power by accident. But before we get to all the angry stuff, first, Ben, thanks a lot for joining me again. I'm glad to see I'm not the only guy who feels this way and that we can rant a bit about the matter. And before we get to that, tell me, what have you been writing lately and what are you working on? Thank you very much for having me back again, Titus. I've been writing for various places. Obviously, I've been writing about this particular subject and trying to stay coherent and keep the ranting in check. For The Spectator, I wrote a piece about the rioting and coronavirus and the great flip-flop from don't come outside or you'll kill everybody's grandmother to come outside and protect everybody's son. I wrote a piece for The Critic about how conservatives shouldn't just assume, though, that everybody will acknowledge this as preposterous and reckless. And the kind of misguided idea that there's always this silent majority just waiting to burst into action in your defense. I've been writing a newsletter, bensixsmith.substack.com, various subjects, political and cultural. And on a completely different note, I'm writing a piece for a new journal called Athwart about deathmatch wrestling, which I, I hope will be more appealing to read than it sounds. I was just reading a thought the other day, an interview with the great political philosophy teacher, Harvey Mansfield, and I didn't know you were writing for them. That's very good. I'm looking forward to this. I know you're a fan of wrestling, which I only understand very little, but uh, I'm looking forward to it. And then our audience, uh, you should read Ben Sixsmith. You will get you know, more wit and restraint and moderation and what writing should be, along with insight in writing than you can in a podcast where our passions may now and then run away with us and eventually cursing. Hopefully we will not get to cursing. We'll see. So Ben, I think you're right that we expect at some level that there are adults, there are serious people in this world, in this country, there are authorities, people we defer to, people we admire, who should be speaking up. The people aren't going to act simply as the silent majority by themselves. You know, we defer in a certain way to important people, even to celebrities in a strange way, to anybody who's popular, really. And that does mean that they have a certain responsibility. People who are famous are famous in part because they are British, because they are important to the people in the UK in this case. That should come with a kind of responsibility to the people, to the country, And the most obvious part of that is being respectful of the nation and the history. It's not just a natural conservatism. You should have some respect for your elders because whatever good things you have in this world come from them. But beyond that, there's the importance of nobility, of the things we admire and we aspire to. These are not just hallowed places that writers or politicians or celebrities occupy for a while so that they can bask in the reflected glow. They are places that should summon duty. And I think there's nothing quite as clear as when people start trashing Churchill statues. 
Absolutely. And I think the failure of politicians to respond to this is almost more disgraceful than the people who are themselves calling for the desecration of history. There will always be dissident elements of society, iconoclastic even elements of society, even if they're larger today than we wish they were. But normally we can expect there to be people who will sufficiently speak out against them and constrain their ability to act on their ideological extremism. The problem is that now in power, instead of leaders, we have team leaders who would be better suited, as I was saying before the podcast, to be working in management in some kind of bland corporation and have seen themselves as just kind of guiding the flow of income and expenditure and giving the occasional pep talk about how well everything's going and about how everyone just needs to give it that little bit of extra push so that we can get into the green at the end of the financial year. And they're not prepared to speak up with any kind of grander authority than that. Yeah, you wonder. England, the UK was supposed to come into grand new days because of the election of Boris Johnson. Here's a man with a classical education, not one of these morons who just goes through PPE and uh, is essentially a manager, as you were saying. And uh, beyond that, he can manage his uh, press. He can manage his public relations is what he can manage. This supposedly is a more daring man, both because in a way he seems irresponsible, unlike our managers, but also in another way he has a book out on Churchill. He's a big Churchill guy. He is Mr. England. He's supposed to embody the UK. Well, where is his big speech in defense of Britain and national history and the way in which national history is alive? Britons are still Britons, that Englishmen are still Englishmen. I hope that, say, Scots might remember that they're also Scots, that they might not allow the humiliation of their national symbols. But for the UK as a whole, for England especially, there doesn't seem to be any of that. Absolutely. I, I, I mean, I think Boris Johnson, a lot of his personal daring is exactly directed towards his personal ambition. He's always been a very motivated man, but more in terms of his career than in what he wants to represent in the world. This is a man who made a documentary in the 2000s endorsing Turkish accession to the EU, but then found himself being the foremost representative of a campaign for Britain to leave the European Union that heavily exploited the fear of Turkey joining the EU without any obvious retraction on his part or reflection on his own political history. I'm not saying he's without principle, but he doesn't have it in any significant quantity. And a lot of his classical learning, while it's real and more impressive than mine, seems to exist mostly as a kind of after-dinner trick so that he can reel off portions of Latin without much reflection on what the Latin actually means and what it ever represented to anybody. I hope he will surprise me. And I know that there's a tendency among people like myself to be quite cynical towards politicians because it makes for good copy. So I hope he will surprise me. But thus far, all of the prejudices I've just voiced towards him as a leader have been confirmed. Yeah, that's a very good point that he's living down to the worst of him, not to any of the hopes invested in him. As you say, the big turn in his career was to embodying England to becoming Mr. Brexit, to becoming Mr. Anti-EU, despite parts of his earlier career that were completely upside down. And fine, okay, this is the adult, the final form of Boris Johnson. Well, where is it? He should live up to this hope, not just because he told the electorate that he would. That was his campaign, that's what he's about. 
but because it's the right thing to do. Because will he or nil he, the country is going through this drama where a bunch of entitled assholes are tarnishing the nation's symbols in the full knowledge that nobody's going to do anything about it, that it's just really a good weekend of fun. And for them, it's all upside. If anybody's going to feel humiliated, if anybody's going to feel like the country's in a way going down the pipes, well, it's not going to be them and nobody's going to say it. Nobody's even going to voice this kind of concern. The worst thing you can be is a coward. The first of the virtues is to be a man, be manly, be courageous. If you stand up for nothing, you cannot expect anybody to respect you and you cannot even really expect self-respect. Mm. You don't know who you are to respect yourself. And with certain transformations, this is ultimately what it means to have a nation. If people will not stand for these things, why are they even British? How can they tolerate this level of humiliation? It's so cheap. These are not revolutionaries risking life and limb to deface symbols or anything like that. There's no sentimentality and drama to this. There's just a cheap thrill and this incredibly sick, but in a way, amused attitude. What are you going to do about it? Absolutely. Somehow, authorities are held in contempt and they are behaving like cowards. And as you say, it's even worse, maybe, because now we have to be contemptuous of them, too. Absolutely. I, I think there's also something to be said about how Johnson specifically represents this kind of post-imperial image of Britain as being defined to a large extent by eccentricity, by uh, humorousness, by this kind of P.G. Woodhouse-esque charm, uh, which is fine to a certain extent but it's also quite empty as your leading virtue or your leading kind of sacred quality that you're living up to. Because when someone is throwing buckets of paint over war heroes and kings and queens, uh, you can't just laugh it off. You can't make a few quips. You can't bumble around endearingly. You need to stand up for something. And what is not Boris Johnson's fault is that post-imperial Britain never really found that something. As Peter Cook said in the 1960s, it just started sinking, giggling into the sea. So <laughs> the failure of the political class does reflect a kind of broader lack of cultural seriousness, which I guess to some extent all of us, all of us who are educated and contributing to culture have been complicit in. Yeah, that's a very good point that there is a depth to the problem we're dealing with. There are obvious reasons why nobody is speaking up, speaking out, not to say shouting or doing anything. Why would you? For what? And this man who is supposed to be the Lion of England is Paddington Bear. <laughs> well, you know, you can't be England as the tourism of England. You can't reduce your own people to being tourists in their own country, or rather in the museum-like past of that country. Hell, I'm pretty sure that museums would be far more violent in defending the stuff they're making money and prestige out of than the nation, it seems to me. Hopefully, there is a lot of indignation and outrage out there, and it's only silenced because the press is in league with the rioters. Hopefully, the cowardice of the Tories will be shaken up somewhat. I was looking dumbfounded over what's happening with these increasing demands to take down this statue and take down the next statue and so forth. And the one that seems to be happening uh, as we're speaking concerns the founder of the Boy Scouts, Lord Baden-Powell. Mm. He's supposed to be removed because of whatever opinions were wrong. Softness on fascism, something like that, I believe, is accused in this case. He, he never did anything that was wrong or wicked or illegal or immoral. And furthermore, he did many good things. And people should still be interested in the Boy Scouts. 
It should be a going concern for this new Britain, not something to trash. There's a petition, I can tell you, to stop the madness. Apparently, they're wanting to remove the statue for security concerns. The police will do it. Uh, the police is going to protect the statue by hiding it. Uh, it's amazing in a way. It's just, this is what the police are willing or can do. Apparently, as soon as you abandon the public space, you might be safe. Whew. The, and they've been looking over these conservative, the story MPs that are speaking out about this because it's their constituency or nearby. This is in Dorset. One of them says, well, this is an error of judgment, put it back, which is like, at least, okay, that's the minimum you could say. Another one just says, blah, 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 historical figures, values change over time, blah, 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 you can't expunge the past, blah, 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 this doesn't correct old wrongs, blah, blah, blah. This is the stupid corporate series of excuses and vacillating language that only advertises cowardice and the, exactly what you were suggesting, the absence of principle. And there's another dude who says, for the avoidance of doubt, I am opposed to the permanent removal of the statue. That's for the avoidance of doubt. <laughs> you don't want it, you know, held against you that you didn't say anything, maybe, when election time comes around again or something like that. For the avoidance of doubt. People are threatening the statue and then the symbol, what it stands for in Britain. And these people are worried that they might be in any way associated with what it stands for. <laughs> what they want at best is to speak for the avoidance of doubt. These are cowards. These are not politicians. Absolutely. And sticking with the kind of corporate metaphor, there is a kind of culture as well of human resources where any kind of intellectual or moral transgression, whatever it might be, wherever it might have occurred, it needs this kind of immediate prosecutorial response. So not just from the radical left, there's this kind of centrist comedian called David Baddiel who waded into the Baden-Powell argument and he said, well, he praised Mein Kampf in his diaries, so I'm in favor of the removal. As if, you know, the one sin, one error of judgment in your life is enough to just say, no, we need it. He's, he's gone. And you're not going to stack an 84-year-old man's misguided diary entry, which nobody need have ever seen unless it was published later against achievements that 100,000 David Badils or 100,000 Mees, for that matter, couldn't hope to equal. So it is this kind of petty, bitchy corporate mindset rather than any kind of cultural soul, let's say. Yeah, this notion that if you can find somebody who's sort of guilty of something and that's a good justification to abandon them, even if it's, as you say, it's a private thought. A man on death's doorstep, he should be judged for that private thought. As if people are looking for excuses not to do anything, not to defend anything, not to stand for anything. Mm. And how does anybody think that this will not mean that next they will behave that way to their friends? If there's something that you could possibly justify cowardice over, you, you wouldn't need to stand up for your friends either. Or for, you know, what would you ever need to stand up for? Yeah, absolutely. I guess you'd end up... Uh, I'd like to think they'd stand up for themselves, but sometimes, as we see from these kind of cringe-making apologies on social media, that need not be the case as well. Yeah. Maybe standing up for the bottom line. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Maybe you can rely on people's self-interest, at least. That might amount to something in some cases, but, you know, it'll be mostly an abandonment of everything beyond the narrowest form of self-obsession, really. Perhaps there is a deep connection between the fact that people don't really stand up for themselves or each other or their friends, and the fact that they won't stand up for the public either. All these contemptuous, insane radicals who are enjoying the destruction 
and lording it over people and humiliating people and seeing people in authority vacillate how weak and what losers they are. It is, you know, very enjoyable if you're on the other side. Maybe they have a very good point that people don't really want to stand up for anything because they don't believe in it. They don't believe it's worth the trouble. They don't believe what it is that might be worth the trouble. And they won't bother. It is possible to humiliate the public space without the public caring. Absolutely. There is a certain intimidation factor as well. Not just about our family lives, our jobs, our income, but just about not wanting to be the bad person. And it's interesting how these things escalate and how quickly these things escalate, because certainly in Britain at the beginning, when these statues started being removed, they did begin with people who I think very few people would argue were not bad men. This kind of merchant class of slave owners who, as leftists wouldn't admit, but as is true, basically hoarded all the wealth for themselves. I think Deirdre McCloskey and a co-author whose name I forgot, they wrote about how all the costs of slavery were paid for by the taxpayer and most of the benefits were hoarded by this class. And you know, if they were being constructed today, I absolutely wouldn't agree with the construction of these statues because to me, I feel like statues are best reserved for heroes and men of great personal accomplishments and not just men who happen to be rich and fund certain civic endeavors. So that was more difficult to stand up for. Personally, I don't think any statue should be removed because they are part of history and they are what our forebears decided should be there. I don't think desecrating that or tearing apart their canvas is the way to build or paint a new canvas today. But they were certainly much more difficult to defend because you wouldn't defend the people. But very quickly that escalated into, well, if we're going to take down slave owners, then we've got to take down men who profited in any way from slavery, like Gladstone, whose father was a slave owner. And then, well, if we're going to take down people who profited from slavery, we've got to take down the statue of anyone who sympathized with slavery, like Lord Nelson, who, again, only privately expressed sympathy with the colonies. And apparently that counts for more than Trafalgar. And once that train is rolling down the tracks, uh, it's very difficult for people to jump off. So they stay frozen in their seat as it plunges off a cliff, even if I suspect most of them are not happy to be there. But that's just part of the dynamic of the mob. That's part of the dynamic of the revolution. Even if you had some sympathy to begin with, that's just the way it develops. Yeah. Talking to and thinking about this, I realized that the thing that makes me angriest about people doing these things is precisely that I understand that at some level there's a relationship between having these great men like Gladstone and Churchill up there and the rest of us not behaving like cowards. Because we are quiescent and we just want to be peaceable and get along. I don't want to get in trouble or get other people in trouble. I would like things to be quiet and reasonable if at all possible. I want to mind my own business and other people mind their own business. And I think we might be able to get along that way, at least for the most part. This is Plato's political philosophy. In the dialogue on moderation, he says, mind your own business. That's the principle of moderation. Don't go too far. Don't be madly ambitious. Don't be irresponsible either. Mind your own business. And then in the dialogue on justice in the Republic, he says, mind your own business is the principle of justice. If you mind your business and everybody else minds their business, we get along. And I think that's because it's true. We all get it at some level. But you know, who's going to mind the public business? Who's going to deal with things when the rest of us are too careful, perhaps? Cautious. You know, it's a normal thing to be cautious. It's cowardly. But it's a noble kind of cowardice because you're not hurting anybody and you don't want harm and danger and bad things to come. 
But there's got to be daring as well. There's got to be bravery. There's got to be some kind of relationship between the willingness to stand up and stand out, to distinguish yourself, and the public affairs and the, the dealing with all things in authority. And our authorities are just not that way. They will not stand up for the thing that is the only thing that is keeping them in authority, which is public respect. It is the sentiment on behalf of the people that there is a kind of nobility that accrues to their office. Not because they are personally that important, at least not unless and until they stand up for something worthwhile and risk something for the sake of other people. But the office, because of the nation, matters. But if the nation doesn't matter and the nation's heroes don't matter and nobody's willing to stand up for them, how will any authority endure? Uh, 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 yeah, absolutely. There needs to be some spiritual, cultural core there that connects us to something beyond ourselves rather than just connecting us as economic agents. And, and it's definitely lacking. And of course, it's that kind of diagnosis is very easy to make. And then the prescription, never mind the surgery, is far more challenging. So I'm, I'm aware there's a kind of vapidity even in diagnosing that vapidity. But it's true, because it does induce this kind of apathy and this kind of, I may not like it, but I might as well go along with it behavior. Yeah. You know, I haven't considered this before, but I think you are right. In moments like this, if you're blind and if you are eyes wide open, you might either way end up in a bad way. If we're being reasonable, there are arguments to be made on both sides. The argument that I don't like, but it carries weight, is that sometimes it's best not to notice things, to pretend it didn't happen and to return to normal as soon as possible. There's something to be said for that. You know, There's a famous phrase of Napoleon's in the most cynical possible statement to which he was given that it is the job of the police sometimes not to pay attention, not to see that which it cannot affect. You would think that it's the job of the police to enforce the laws, to protect the people, but sometimes you just gotta pretend. And apparently the police throughout the United Kingdom is very much in this Napoleonic spirit, ignoring the realities that it wouldn't pay to take notice of. There is something to be said for that. Sometimes what are you gonna do? But I would rather face the risks that come with the alternative, with noticing, with speaking out about these things. Perhaps you and I will just make fools of ourselves because nobody gives a damn. Perhaps mm. it will only show how powerless we are to do anything about this. Perhaps if we fail to convince people that they should be outraged about this or speaking up about their outrage, in our failure we'll make fools of ourselves even more than that. And in a way, it is a deeper problem that doesn't really have anything to do with us. What if people see this, read about it in the papers, see it on TV, and learn to despise themselves? Yeah, absolutely. I think there's also been a serious problem in the Anglo-American conservative tradition where, I mean, William Buckley famously, uh, it's almost uh, become a legend that uh, the National Review was formed with the aim of standing athwart history, crying stop. But in practice, Anglo-American conservatism has very much been standing on the train saying, could we slow down a little? Pretty much any objection to social change has been premised on, this is just going too fast. This is a little too disorderly. There's got to be another way of doing it, this kind of proceduralism, which sometimes is very valuable. I mean, I'm definitely not going to be so stupid and obstinate as to suggest there's no such thing as good change. But there is also a time when you just say, no, this is flatly wrong. I'm not going to make any kind of proceduralist argument about the norms of social change. I'm just going to say, no, this isn't going to happen. And I'm not going to let it happen. And when it comes at least to aspects of this, so for example, with Churchill now and Gladstone, Peel, James Cook, 
that is a time to just say no. And the act of that could be very valuable. Yeah. Even when we realize what we stand for, we should sometimes be cautious. You don't want to make a fuss out of everything, certainly. You just don't want to go through life with the opinion that everything is going to hell all the time. It wouldn't be good for any of us. It wouldn't be good for us together to continuously lash ourselves over our debasement. But there are all these real marks of who we are and how we deal with who we are. Do we stand for the things that we have? Is there any gratitude for the things that we have? And I suggest that there must be some self-loathing. People aren't that terribly ungrateful. People aren't that miserably unjust as to not show gratitude. There's nothing Englishmen can do to repay their forebears. They've inherited a great country, and there's nothing you can do to pay people back. You can only be grateful for that generosity. You can come into that inheritance, and, you know, we feel proud if you do come into that inheritance, because it is something to be proud of. But if people have, instead of that inheritance and that pride, self-loathing, then they can't stand up for anything. If you can't feel the shame of ingratitude and of cowardice, you don't deserve any better. Absolutely. That is a terrible problem. As you say, you have to stand up and say no. You have to tell people that they are behaving in the trashiest way imaginable. They are trashing the past. This is no act of courage. This is no act of standing up for anything. Whenever I see these people rioting with their claims that they are fighting racism or slavery or fascists, like everybody's fighting Hitler in the mm. aftermath, I think they would all have been fascists. They would have found at the time that it's actually super attractive, like they do now, to be violent, to be destroying things, and to be trashing law and order. And they would never have had the courage to stand up against a mob or against tyranny. They're worse than us, but we're not really better than them if we don't stand up for anything. Absolutely. These are not powerful or important people. We're not facing Hitler. We're facing a rabble who don't have anything to redeem them in their political activity. There's no good thing to what they're doing. There's no upside to it. And it is all. It is very much all negative. And I suppose there is a core that I can sympathize with. When you, when you are descended from slaves, of course I understand the resentment you're going to feel towards the slave owners. I mean, it's only human. You have to be robotic to deny it. But it's been latched onto by this far greater mass of people who they have been born with this great inheritance. And I almost think you can compare it to the unsuccessful child of a successful man who in a sense resents the greatness of his father because he resents his own smallness and looks for some way to discredit it. In fact, you can see many examples of far-left activists, theoreticians who are descended from very rich people or nobility, partly because it gives them the means to do so, but I suspect partly as well because they resent having to live their life in the shadow of this success with the sense that things have been more easy for them than for other people and want to push against it. So I think that explains a lot of the kind of self-hatred in a national sense. They know they've been born lucky and they don't like it. It's not just that they don't know it. They just, they just don't like it. Yeah. You know, we are seeing in a way both elite and national self-loathing because if you don't like your life, what do you have to be grateful for? If you have no measure of happiness, if you don't have any virtues, why would you like yourself? It may be better to destroy those who are better than you or their memory, so at least you don't have to blush anymore. There is something very contemptible. It's a lack of noblesse oblige, like it's a lack of gratitude. You're supposed to stand up for the things that have gotten you to where you are, not just for the good things you have, but for everything that you have. 
you are tied up to it somehow and you're supposed to perpetuate it rather than let it be destroyed or spat upon. If there's no other way to understand that this is bad, just look at the rage and the misery, the destructiveness, the defacing, the tearing down. Who the hell thinks that that's good? Who lives his life that way? Nobody would let that happen to him or to his home or to his family or to his friends or to anything he cares for. And yet it is tolerated because indeed it's welcome relief from having to prove yourself, from having to do something for other people. That's noblesse oblige. You have it better than others. You're supposed to serve the public in some way. You're supposed to earn privileges that you have inherited. And I think it's dumb and irresponsible down to the level of selfishness because privileges that are inherited aren't for that reason metaphysically eternal, permanent, untouchable. They can be lost. They are being lost. People who do not stand up for what they have will lose it. The lack of love of your own things is perhaps the most contemptible thing about people. You can't like people who do not like themselves at any level. You may at best agree that they are worthless. Perhaps this is what these rioting and then destroying mobs think. These people deserve being humiliated because they are worthless. And if they don't stand up for themselves, they have proved the point, haven't they? Well, that's, that's a very good point. I mean, I think if you're pushing against someone, even if you don't want to provoke a reaction necessarily, because the reaction will hurt, if you're pushing against an open door, you are going to feel greater disdain. And that explains the almost celebratory nature of some demonstrations because it is a victory and they, they can feel they have more energy, more passion, more, more spirit than anyone they've been resisting. So you can't deny that, really. You almost have to give it to them. And that goes back to what I was saying at the beginning, where the authorities are almost more disgraceful than the people who are desecrating or threatening these statues and these monuments because part of their job is to oppose things like that. Yeah. It is suicidal on the part of elites to tolerate this sort of stuff. It used to be known by elites that if you're on top of society, you shouldn't encourage a lot of change, certainly not rapid change, because it can't be good for you. There's no further up to go if you're on top. You can only go down, which you should avoid. Somehow you cannot trust these people with basic concepts like self-interest, which you think is a major problem for modern liberalism and the theory of self-interest. There's a lot of evidence that it's not quite real. <laughs> Absolutely. And I guess because we've spent so long really gauging political success by GDP, coronavirus is, and the lockdowns are going to have an interesting effect where you can't judge your success by economic growth. So we'll see what kind of political transformations that inspires just because this managerial attitude towards economics has to expand. So perhaps there will be more of a political shakeup, but certainly not so far. Yeah, as you said at the beginning, in a way, we are speaking soon. Of course, you have to because these things are happening now, but we don't know yet how things might change. Maybe somebody's spine will stiffen. Maybe things will get better. But as you say, you have to learn to learn from suffering. Obviously, wealth, prosperity has not taught people to love Britain or respect Britain. Maybe it is required to have some kind of suffering to realize not just what you stand to lose, but how dear it is and how shameful it is to lose it. Symbols are very important because of the way they magnify things in our hearts that we often hide and just as often take for granted. Is Britain the kind of place where the police will harass people over politically incorrect tweets but won't protect the public space? Mm. I, I, sadly, yes. I thought that was a rhetorical question. But yes, it is. <laughs> It is such a vivid contrast as well with the kind of early days of the lockdown where the police were suddenly inescapable when they had the ability to harass conscientious middle-class people over sitting in the park for a moment to read a book. 
the full might of British policing really swung into gear. Whereas now when there's an actual threat to civic order, to public property, they become, you know, as a collective body, much more retiring, much more submissive almost. I mean, there were officers dutifully taking the knee. Uh, yeah. I mm. saw this video of a perfectly English-looking guy, uh, you know, quaint as you like, as we were saying before, who went to the Churchill statue, this is in Westminster, and took some of the defacement off, just casually stepped up in the middle of the mob and the rioting and took some of the defacements off and went on his way all inside of a minute. And then policemen who were there, these bobbies in their reflective vests, you know, so they can be safe, started after him to get him. I think the one thing I will say for the police is I suspect in that instance they were trying to protect him and not arrest him because that was a very that was a very angry crowd and I suspect he was in significant element of danger there if uh, he passed by the wrong group and they wanted merely to protect the guy and yeah and of course he was in danger he did a daring deed with all these cops around who were all cowards because that's what they've been asked to do and maybe that's what they believe. As you say, I hadn't thought about this, but yeah, now that you mention it, I remember all these photographs and videos of policemen harassing people in their cars, in the parks, anywhere, out in nature. You come to walk here, well, it's a problem. Mm. This kind of petty, almost bureaucratic love of tyranny to destroy somebody else's freedom is also showing up here in this other way by allowing a more violent kind of tyranny to ruin people's freedom and their dignity. Yeah, absolutely. And of course, we all know what the reaction would be if there was a misplaced baton and horrible consequences. So it's not as if the police are responding out of fear of nothing. And I know it's a difficult balance to strike. You know, nobody wants to have mass brawls on the streets. So I don't want to pretend it's easy. But, you know, how dangerous would it be to have a ring of police officers surrounding the memorial? How dangerous would it be indeed just to peacefully close down the protests on the grounds that people aren't allowed to go and visit their grandmother because we're in the middle of a pandemic, but we're tolerating a mass gathering just because there's enough people that we're too scared to clear them. Nobody wants violence, but also nobody wants this tremendous fear of violence that means the mob can have its own way. Yeah. Uh, you're right. If anything, this shows how dangerous it is to tolerate any kind of dishonor. If you're one day willing to allow people to dishonor the cenotaph, the war dead are all of a sudden this, this sort of trophy for people who want to spit on their memory. If you have that kind of attitude, if you allow these things, you allow indeed worse things. Absolutely no willingness to stand up and to defend these things and to defend the public space and what it stands for. is as though if it's something that we all kind of share because it's public, if it defines the nation to the world and we are out here looking at Britain and despising this weakness, this incompetence in authority, this betrayal of duty, then that's perfectly fine. But indeed, if you were to get one bad headline because some Bobby hit somebody, well, that would be the end, wouldn't it be? The inquiries and firings and what have you. Ministers answering questions and perhaps resigning. And that's all that really counts. That would be the worst way to go in this situation. And it might encourage violence of a worse kind. You know, it's a prudential question. You don't know. We'll see how events turn out. But this kind of dishonor shouldn't be tolerated. And how compatible it is, as you're saying, with bullying normal people for their normal lives is something that should worry everybody. 
And I expect that this will have consequences. I think that people who tell themselves that you can just wait for it to blow over and we'll all forget about it, it won't count in any way, are mad. I understand the madness, it's tempting in a way, but nothing of a large social character, nothing that attracts the attention of the nation and holds it for days or weeks can simply be forgotten. No consequences. Yeah, absolutely. And we can see how much more accepting we've become. I, I can't remember how many years it was ago, but let's say it was about a decade ago, there was a famous student protest and there was a young man who was swinging on the flag next to the cenotaph. And that was a big story. People were outraged. I think it helped that he was a very, very middle-class child of privilege. He was the son, uh, adopted son of Dave Gilmore. And somehow, uh, uh, a rich, somehow a rich young idiot is easy to have. Big deal. People were very angry. He, he got a prison sentence. Someone tried to burn the flag at the center. I don't know who it was. I don't know if he has faced it. It just came and went through the Twitter timeline in a flash and it disappeared. So we can see how much things can be normalized. And like you say, we can't just expect that in a month uh, the pandemic will be over. Everybody will be getting along and Boris Johnson will be a competent managerialist figurehead. Yeah, I look at it from afar and Britain looks like sleepwalking through a bad dream. But surely it'll soon be over. And mm. it's a very contemptible thing. And it is the exact opposite of what everybody was hoping for or fearing when people were talking about Brexit and indeed... Boris Johnson's great, unexpected electoral victory. It was supposed to be a rebirth of Britain in some way, or a restoration of British dignity, self-control, sovereignty. Turns out that, no. I mean, maybe some European bureaucrats would have defended the uh, public symbols in Britain, but British people apparently won't. It's awful. I do feel as if Emmanuel Macron would have stood up for the, you know... If someone had been defacing the Arc de Triomphe, I feel like there would have been more of an iron response than there has been from Johnson. Like you say, yes, absolutely. Yeah, that's, oh, it's such a goddamn mess, Ben. And we can just hope that people will wake up, that a slap in the face is what it takes to wake people up. It's unpleasant, but not unheard of. Well, so with this, Ben, thanks a lot for joining me. It always means a lot to know that other people, people you respect, share some of your opinions and some of your indignation, and especially so when we are obviously in the minority. So I'm glad I'm not the only one who feels this way. Thanks a lot. Thanks a lot for having me. And perhaps sometime soon we'll talk about something less gloomy, maybe even joyous if you dare hope. I hope so. All the best, mate. Bye-bye. All the best. Bye-bye.